Good morning. What is man, Lord, that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you visit him. Today we're going to talk about a biblical and Christian vision of the person. What does it mean to be a person? In one sense, we're persons. So we live with ourselves and we know persons. And yet, we're also the most mysterious thing that we encounter, ourselves and others. There's something that's obvious, we have a shared nature, and yet, we don't understand ourselves, and we don't understand others. And what does it mean to be created in the image of God? That's something epic if we start to reflect upon it. So part of knowing who we are, knowing, and is also part of knowing who God is, And so we're engaged in a deep mystery. And it matters what we think about the person. Because what we think about the person is going to shape everything else. How we think about the economy, how we think about politics, how we think about marriage, how we think about sexuality, how we think about love, how we think about friendship. All of it comes down or is influenced deeply by what it means to be a human person. So in this, um, this morning, I'm going to use Genesis as a foundation, but I know you've been reading Genesis for the last two weeks, so I'm not going to read it, but it's going to be in your mind. Don't forget Genesis. Sometimes we can read Genesis and we think, oh, what a nice story. Pay attention closely to Genesis. It has very much to tell us. It's deep and profound. Little things that we reflect upon give insight on what it means to be a person. Um, I'm also going to make philosophical arguments. Okay, why? Why am I making philosophical arguments at a church? Shouldn't we be just only thinking about scripture? Well, I'm going to make philosophical arguments for a reason. One reason is because we kind of sometimes when we think about the human person, it's like, well, you know, the Bible tells us this, okay, and then we get out into the world and the world tells us, well, we're determined by our neurobiology. And um, don't you know that love is just really a chemical reaction, right? And so we have all these arguments that are coming to us, and we can't just respond with Scripture because people say, I don't believe in Scripture. But the reason I'm going to do philosophically also is because I'm going to make the case that the Christian biblical vision of the person is much more rigorous philosophically than any of the multiple secular transhumanist visions that we're given today. Let me just, I'm going to jump ahead and tell you. What happens at the end, at the end, okay? C.S. Lewis says, you've never met a mere mortal. Civilizations, cultures, these are mortal. But it's immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. So at the end, we don't just die, we live forever. And faith is the beginning, when we have faith in Jesus Christ, that's the beginning of our eternal life with God. And then at the end, before the next beginning, what happens? We get our bodies back, okay? We get our bodies back. Your body is not an accident. We get our bodies back. 
The transhumanist tells us we're going to upload ourselves to the internet. Okay. And they think getting our bodies back with the resurrection is, is, is silly. Okay. So think of all the embodied experiences you have. It's a beautiful sunny day. You're walking outside. You see your, 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 your grandchild or your child and they're playing in the, in, among the, in the garden and there's a peach, you're eating a peach and it's dropping, drooping down your hand and the, the child is there and she's twirling and the sun is lighting on her hair and she also has that peach and it's dripping and you look at her with some joy and gratitude that God has brought you to this place and sadness because you haven't been all you could be and sadness because you're going to die and she's going to be left without you. But then joy because you know that you're going to rise again. And the pine trees are giving you a scent that reminds you of your childhood and your own parents and your own hopes and dreams. And I have a question for you. How are you going to upload that? How are you going to upload that? You're not, okay? Because we're not just like little ones, zeros, and ones in our brain. We made computers, and now we're like, oh, we're like a computer. No. <laughs> We made computers. We're not like a computer. Computers are like a bad copy of us. Okay? So the reason I'm talking about all this stuff is philosophically, you know, you get all these experiences and all these arguments coming. And so part of the reasons I'm going to be more philosophical, I'm going to be scriptural too, but more philosophical is because as Christians, we need to know we have a rigorous vision of what it means to be the human person that is philosophically sound, that, of course, comes from the scriptures, but that also resonates with our own experience. So one of the things I'm going to ask you to do in this as, we, as I talk, and then after as you think about it, is go back to your own experience. Now, that can be dangerous, right? Because we can rationalize absolutely everything. I'm, I'm telling you, I can rationalize every bad thing I've ever done. Well, the real reason is this. It was somebody else's fault. Okay? So going back to your experience is a little dangerous. But it's also essential because you are an embodied, embedded person. So you have to go back to your own experience. And here's one of the reasons I say this. So, you know, you go to college and they say, no, you might have been told by your parents or your pastor that love is this beautiful image that we have, but actually it's just your chemicals, okay? Go back to your own experience. You know that's not true. It's not even close to true. I tried it. I walked up to my wife. I was like, my dear, my neurochemicals are so moved by your neurochemicals. I mean, she swooned. She said, don't ever give me flowers again, okay? <laughs> but you know that's not true, right? You know that love is an act of the will that affirms the other person. It's a response to the value of the other person that says, it is good that you are. And guess what? Are your neurochemicals and your biology moving? You bet. You know why? Because we are made out of the dust of the earth. And so the errors that abound are materialism. We're just bodies. And of course, if we're just bodies, well, you're just matter. And if you're just matter, I can socially engineer you to create the perfect state. Or we're just spirits and our bodies don't matter. We're just driving around in our body like we're driving around in a car. Like, oh, sorry, my body ran into you. Okay, that's not true either. 
But a Christian vision of the person is that we are embodied persons. There's three kinds of persons. Did you know that there's three kinds of persons? Think about it. One kind of person is divine. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The second kind of person are angelic. And the third kind of person is us, embodied persons. And I already told you, the, our bodies aren't an accident because we get them back at the end. All right? So how we, so going back to your own experience is so important because, you know, we're told by some, what, the arbiters of reality, things that we know are not true. And so that was a long explanation to tell you, that's why I'm also being philosophical. But going back to your own experience matters. Okay. <clears throat> so the other reason is because we have to think like Christians, which means we have to be thinking about, like a, when this, we read the scriptures and we read the Genesis narrative, or we ask this question, who is man, Lord? When you have dominion, what does it mean to be a person? And we live, of course, in, in, in a world where there's a lot of different ideas, pluralist ideas, but one of the, the errors that we make is that we think secularism is neutral. The secularism is not neutral. It's filled with lots of assumptions. So part of what we need to do is clarify, okay, what are the assumptions? How do I think about what it means to be a person? Okay, so what I want to do then today is go over seven characteristics of the human person. Okay, seven characteristics. Okay, if I had a slide, I would go like this. Actually, I, I, I would have made the best PowerPoint you've ever seen, but I didn't. Okay, so you're going to have to use your imagination. All right. Okay, trust me, it would, it would have been great. Okay, and you would have been thinking, this guy makes PowerPoints. Okay. Um, okay, so there are seven things. Now, for the, okay, I'm going to say this too. Also, if you're, if, you're, if you're interested in this, or if you're totally bored and you don't want to listen, and you, but you want to like, tell somebody that you did, I have a seven-page handout that I can make available that I'll think you, can, you can download and you can read it. So I have all these notes and quotes and everything else, seven pages that you can have to kind of summarize this. So if you do think like, oh, wait, what was number four? I, have, I can get that for you, so, so, so don't worry. Just be engaged in what I'm saying, okay? <laughs> yeah, amen, I have a fan. Okay, all right. <clears throat> okay, so <clears throat> the seven attributes of the human person. The first one, I'm going to tell you what they are, and then I'm going to tell you what they are, and then I'm going to tell you what I told you. Okay, so the first one is reason. We have intelligence and reason. The second, we are free. We have free will. Third, we are good, but we are fallen. Four, we are social beings and personal subjects. We're neither radical individuals who just kind of like pop out of nowhere, nor do we simply exist for the community. Five, I've mentioned this before, we are embodied persons. We're created from the dust of the earth. Six, we have spiritual emotions, what C.S. Lewis calls reasonable emotions. Love, mercy, compassion, friendship. These things are not simply like irrational passions. They're a response to reality. And then seven, finally, we have an everlasting destiny beyond this world. So the first one is that we have reason. And this is really the most essential characteristic of the person. Now remember, when we, in the beginning was the word. And the Greek word for word is logos. And logos doesn't just mean like a word. 
it also means like reason. So we're created in the image of the loving God. And in the beginning was the logos. So reason and freedom, these first two, are part, the part, the deep part of the image of God. So reason means that we have the ability to understand truth, to conform our mind to reality. That's what truth is. Truth is not like, you know, people say, my truth and your truth. Okay, maybe you say, my experience of this situation. You have something to say. But my truth, truth is the conforming of the mind to reality. And reason gives us the ability to do that. Reason means we can love because love is a free act of the will. To worship, to work, to create art, to make sacrifices for others. As classical and Christian philosophers uh, through time have explained, they say we're animals, but we're rational animals. Okay? So reason means that we can obviously engage in conceptual thought. Okay? So we can build things like this church. Okay? We, can, we can invent things. We can build phones and, and cues and all the other things that we can do. Um, we can solve c- complex problems. Okay? Now, animals can do some of this, right? So beavers can build a dam. Um, but beavers don't generally rent out their dams to other beavers and then decorate them and have Airbnbs. Okay? Okay, they don't tend to tend to build cathedrals and other things like that. Okay, uh, <clears throat> second reason means we can perform acts of understanding. So we don't only know what something is, we can know the why behind it. Third reason means we have the capacity for interiority, that we are aware of ourselves as a subject, an I. And I mean a capital I, not this I, right? Like your grammar. I'm taking you back to grammar class, okay? You're an I. What is happening to me? Why am I thinking this? Okay, why am I reacting this way? Of course, we can make mistakes. But the fact that we can do it is a sign of our interiority that comes from reason. And not only that, we can recognize the I in another. The Jewish 20th century philosopher Martin Buber wrote an important book called I and thou. He says that we relate to the world as its. There's all these its behind me, but there's all these thous in front of me. And and I know that a thou, another I, is not simply an object, a thing to be manipulated, but is a person to be respected. So fourth, we have the ability to perceive and be moved by beauty, to create art, Okay, and also to participate in the transcendent. So our intellects give us the ability to see and seek, seek after truth, to go after the good. So we immediately sense from our intellect, good is to be done and pursued, and evil is to be avoided. Okay, we make mistakes, but that's what we see. That's intellect. And then finally, this experience of beauty. Okay. So when I say reason, I I can't, there's not time for this, but I just want to say very quickly, when I say reason, I don't just mean like engineering. Reason extends far beyond that, okay? It it includes like mercy and justice and compassion 
and love, like I mentioned. Don't just think of reason as our, only our engineering elements. Okay, it goes far uh, beyond that uh, because it is connected to this idea of logos. Right, so this, that's the first reason. Okay, the second is that we are free. Okay, human beings are free. Now, we are profoundly influenced by our environment. We're influenced by our genetics. We're influenced by our diet. Okay, if you had like Fruit Loops this morning, your concentration levels are not going to be as good as somebody who did not have Fruit Loops this morning. Okay. <laughs> All right, who had like butter coffee or something, right? So, uh, so we're influenced by our diet. We're influenced by our families. We're influenced by the, the, the weather, right? We're influenced by epigenetics. I mean, we are profoundly influenced, okay? Um, but we are not solely determined by these things. We have the ability to make free choices, even in the most difficult situations, Viktor Frankl wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, and he was put into a concentration camp. And he, he said, even in those situations, I realized that there was this deep freedom I had, and that freedom was connected to meaning, and that I could do something, and I could react in a certain way. And we're able um, to also go, we have contrary passions, right? We want to be thin, and we want a Cinnabon, okay? Right? Oh, we, we, we're afraid but we have to be brave. We have to sacrifice ourselves and our own needs and wants to serve and love others. We can stand up for justice in the face of violence. We can fast for our spiritual good even when we're hungry. We have the capacity to give ourselves in self-donation, in friendship, in love and sacrifice. And we're like this, we can do this because we're like God. We're made in his image. Now, we're different. Our freedom is also different from the freedom of an animal. Okay, so animals can make choices. How many people have dogs? Goats, chickens? Okay, all right. So goats are capricious. All right, so you can... A dog's like, oh, I'm going to eat this. I'm not going to eat this, okay? But no dog thinks with interiority, oh, my paw hurts. Do I have enough life insurance in case this is cancer? They don't think that. <laughs> dogs don't think like, you know, we really should fast, you know, to prepare ourselves for the Paschal feast. And this is a little earthy, but no dog has ever looked at another dog and thought, she's beautiful, but I think we'll wait till marriage, okay? <laughs> but we do because we're free. Okay, we are free. Human beings are free. And related to that, we are moral agents. It gives us, we have responsibility for our actions. Okay, there's two big ideas of freedom in the, in the world, and I talk about them briefly. One of them is that we're not free. We're just determined, okay? There are literally famous people who go around and give dinner conversations, 45-minute arguments to tell us that you're not free. And I'm thinking to myself, like, do you want me to change my mind? Like, what do you mean? You're giving me an argument to convince me to change my mind that I'm free. If I'm not free, then I can't change my mind, okay? <laughs> I've already decided I was free, and I'm stuck there because I was determined to think I'm free. I mean, it's, it's, it's incoherent, okay? And no one lives like that. 
No one lives like that. The other dominant one, which is kind of funny because they actually enable each other, is this idea that freedom is simply the exercise of the will. Look, I'm free. I can do what I want. I have no moral responsibility. I can just exercise my will. And you can't tell me what to do. There's no right or wrong. Freedom is just doing what I feel, okay? There's two points I want to make. One um, uh, point is this. You know, the, uh, I interviewed this, this professor of law, and he talks about this, this idea called expressive individualism. Expressive individualism is like, I have this passion, and I'm going to do something with my life, and I can do whatever I want, and I'm going to express myself. And he says, look, you can be friends with somebody like that, but they should be nowhere near the law. Why? Because the only reason any one of us in this room has the ability to live out our passions and do what we want and not care about others and just exercise our will is because somebody else didn't do that when they were taking care of us. I have a one-year-old boy, okay? No, he's not my grandchild, even though I look old. The reason I look old is because I am, okay? <laughs> All right. Anyway, I have a one-year-old boy. I have seven children. My one-year-old If I didn't, if my wife and I just like, sorry, bud, you have your life. We have ours. We've got to follow our passion. He would be dead, okay? Because freedom is not, like freedom comes with responsibility, all right? So this idea, like, I'm just going to exercise my will. But that's as incoherent, actually, as the determinism. Why? Because if I said, thank you so much, I'm so happy to be here at High Point today, and I started banging my head on the end of this podium and blood was shooting out, I do not think one of you would say, wow, Michael is so free. <laughs> you would say, he's lost his mind. He's, why? Because a free, an irrational will is not a free will. So freedom has an end. You know what the end of freedom is? The end of freedom is love. Because love is an act of will that seeks the good of the other. That's what love is. It's a lot more than that, but that's what it is. It's an act of the will that seeks the good of the other. And those of you who are married and have children, you know that it's an act of the will sometimes. Right? Because oh, there's no, it's an act of the will. Go to bed. Okay? But an act of the will means also that because we're an embodied, integrated person, it's a whole self saying, I will your good. It is good that you are. And that's the end of freedom, to love. So the third, oh, and let me say this too. Yes, I have time, okay. Let me say this too. Connected to the act of the will and to love, this is where joy comes from. Because joy cannot be grasped. You can't get joy. Have you ever had a moment when you've had a deep experience where you're praying and you just feel like you're close to the Lord and it was such a great, and you get out, that, 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 this is great, and you go back the next day, I'm just going to go get, get me that experience again, and it, it feel, falls flat. Why? Because you, we were in a relationship with our Creator where He was giving us grace. Then the next time we tried to grasp the grace. Okay? You ever have a really fun night, everything's fun, and you're like, we're going to recreate that. You kind of learn that like in high school. Like, that was the funnest night ever. Let's do it again. And it was like falls flat. Why? Because joy can't be grasped. Joy is the fruit of a love relationship. And that means joy is the fruit of self-sacrifice, self-donation, and using our freedom for love. So the third is that we are good but fallen. 
We are made in the image of God. God says it's good. And then the fall happens. Something's wrong with us. We're broken. And that in one sense is like, oh, okay, that's no big deal. That matters. If you think that doesn't matter in politics, let me tell you really quickly, almost all the bad regimes of the 20th century and the technocratic regimes of today do not accept that. They think that humans can be perfected. They think that evil comes from the outside. But as Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great Russian writer who survived the, the, the gulags, said, evil comes from the human heart. There's something wrong with us, which means we cannot create a system that's going to solve the problem of evil, sin, suffering, and death. Only God can do that. Man cannot do that. We don't put our trust in man alone. We put our trust in God. We don't put our trust in progress or the state or artificial intelligence or technology or the dictator or the next economic policy. We cannot be redeemed by the state. We cannot be redeemed by science. We cannot be redeemed by technology. We cannot be redeemed by economics or by new consumer goods. We can only redeem by God. And in, in that, we love one another, even in our fallen condition. The fourth characteristic is that human beings are social. Now, while each of us is a subject, okay, by subject I mean like a someone, not a thing. A subject, and we're unique and unrepeatable, we achieve human flourishing and moral perfection, to a point, in relationship with others, not by ourselves, okay? So I said we're not radical individuals that only exist for ourselves, but nor do we simply exist for the community. Right? We're not just, oh, you matter to be moved around. Right? We, are, we are persons in relationship, okay? And we're born into a family. So one of the things I talk about is that we're embodied, but we're also embedded. We're embedded in all kinds of relationships and, and traditions and things. So let me just, let's do a 30-second exercise, okay? Think about what's making this whole thing possible. Number one, we share a language. We inherit a language. The language is English, okay? We're in a building that's being held up by cement and rebar and a host of other things. You can hear me because we have technology. The electricity has worked. Somebody has built the electric grids. Um, Patrick Nick told you we made a little film on coffee. You know how complex it is to get a cup of coffee? Super complex. And we're like, oh, coffee, can I have another one, right? We're embedded in this deep situation, and, and so we're social. And we're also born into a family, okay? We're born into a family. <clears throat> and the family is an essential part of who we are as persons. We cannot take the family for granted. The family is not a construct of the state. The family is a biological and sociological reality. That is, we know from scripture, comes after, is named after God, after whom every family is named, right? It's a biological and sociological reality. The state can't just redefine the reality because it it, it's a biological and sociological reality that comes from our social nature as a person, okay? And we're social, you can see in the beginning in Genesis, right? God sees Adam and he gives Adam all the, the, the animals to name, right? And Adam is unsatisfied, remember? 
And for the first time in the, in the Genesis creation narrative, he, God says, it's not good for man to be alone. So he puts Adam into a deep sleep. And then out of Adam's rib, he makes Eve. And then he gives Eve to Adam. And what does Adam say when he sees Eve? He says, at last, at last. That's powerful. At last, I'm not alone. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. There's a theologian who says what Adam sees is identity and difference. Identity, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and difference, woman. And in that identity and difference is a call to communion. And from that call to communion comes another person, a subject, a child, who exists for his or her own sake. The child doesn't exist for Adam and Eve. The child doesn't exist for the parents. That's why, actually, you know, when you say, oh, children, what a gift, that's actually not a sentimental statement. That's an ontological, fundamental reality of being. A child is a gift because a child does not exist for the parents. A child exists because God wills them into being, and they have an eternal destiny. So then the fall happens. We've talked about good and fallen. What happens? I think some of the saddest words in the whole Bible, okay, it's not the part that works hard. That's bad enough. I think the saddest part is when God says to Eve, you shall desire your husband and he will lord it over you. And what happens then is that identity and difference, the difference comes in front of the identity. And Adam turns Eve into an object for his use and gratification. And that's what we do to each other. Right? This is why lust is a sin. Because lust sees a woman, say, for example, and I see this woman, and she has hopes and dreams and wants and fears, and as a person, she's a daughter of, and a, of, of, of parents, she's a daughter of God, she's, she's a sister, she's got all these hopes and dreams, and I see her, and I take her sexual values, I isolate them, and I turn her into an object, which is an offense against God, an offense against reason, because she's not an object, she's a person, right, and an offense against her. That's why lust is a sin, not just simply because, like, well, God said so. Yeah, he told you so because it is, right? Sometimes, by the way, I always think, like, sometimes, like, well, the reason is because God said so. Yeah, but the reason he told us so is because it is, right? Don't forget that. Okay, so, so that's what we also do to poor people sometimes, right? We do work in poverty. We, like, we let the difference of, say, oh, they're from, from sub-Saharan Africa, and they look different than I do, and we just objectify them, not in the same gravity, but we treat them like, oh, with our pity and our compassion. We don't see people as subjects. And so part of the, 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 the definite beautiful vision of the Christian vision of the person is that we have to realize we are in an intersubjective relationship. Okay, we are persons in intersubjectivity. So I'll tell you one more thing about this. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to get in trouble for this word, but I'm going to define it. So part of the Christian tradition has a, a line that says, I don't know where it's from, but it says that marriage is a remedy for concupiscence, okay? Does anyone know what concupiscence is? Okay, trust me, you feel it. All right, concupiscence is when St. Paul says, I do what I hate and I don't do what I want. 
You know what I mean? You're like, today I'm going to be good. That's concupiscence, okay? It's the effects of original sin. It's that kind of brokenness in us, okay? It says remedy, marriage is a remedy for that. Like, what? What does that mean? Well, and I'm a little bit, pardon my earthiness here, but it's important. That doesn't mean an outlet for horniness. That's not what it means. It means a cure for the disorder that happens because through practice of loving virtue and self-donative giving, we give ourselves to each other, to our spouse through self-donation. We wake up in the middle of the night to take care of babies, to solve problems, to work through what's going on with our teenager or our adult children. And we're working through these things and we're loving one another and we're ordering our sexuality and all these things. And after this practice, the remedy, the cure, we become naked without shame. That's what love does. It's a cure, okay? It's not perfect, but that's where, the, with the grace of God, this is what happens. This is, why, this is why marriage is such a beautiful thing. All right, number five, I've talked about this a bit already, but we are embodied, okay? We are a mix of the material and spiritual. We are not simply matter, and we're not simply spirit. We're embodied persons, okay? Now, sometimes in the face of materialism and biological, like neurological explanations, Christians can almost overreact to our spiritual nature. But we have nothing to run away from from the, from the body because we're made out of the dust of the earth. You know, people will say, you know, we share like 96% of our DNA or 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees. And I say, yeah, we share 60% with a banana. W what does that mean? <laughs> of course we do. We're carbon-based. Right? We're made out of the earth. You know, do you know mammals do that? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Right? What do you want me to agree to? That, that, that I, I mean, I, that I'm like a banana? I mean, what does that mean? It doesn't, in a sense, yes, we're biological beings, and it's beautiful. Yes, our, our neurology has, and, and neurobiology has effects on us. Yes, it just doesn't determine who we are. It's not all of who we are. Okay, yes, we have a soul, we're animate, that's why we're animals, we're spiritual beings, okay, but, but we're not angels, we're embodied, okay? Um, a, a theologian says, I am not my soul. It's very interesting, I'm not my soul. Right? Notice, we get our bodies back. So, Embodiment is very important to understand. I, there's not time to go into it, but it's, it's, it's one of the things that where Christians are really confused. Um, but the, the, the scriptures give us a deep insight and the tradition and the philosophical writings give us a deep insight to help us wrestle with a lot of the things that are going on today that are confusing come back to a misunderstanding of embodiment. Somehow that we're supposed to escape from our bodies. That the real me is inside of this and it's not, it's not connected. No. Our bodies are not an accident. Our bodies are good. And we get them back at the resurrection of the body. The sixth point is that we have spiritual emotions. And this means, just what I've kind of talked about before, that it's important that we understand the passions, not simply as like, oh, I've got passions that I, I, I did not have my passions, okay? No, what we have to do is we have to order our passions to our reason and to truth. Okay, so you heard probably Freud talks about sublimate, right, sublimate. Uh, and you think, oh, that's repressive. But that's another way of saying to make sublime our passions. So if you have a desire for union with the beloved, 
you make sublime the passion. Anger is one of the seven deadly sins, okay? It's bad business. But it also can be used as a gift to fight injustice if we order it to reason and to truth. And so this, this idea of, 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 of reasonable emotions, C.S. Lewis writes about in my favorite book of C.S. Lewis, The Abolition of Man. If you have not read The Abolition of Man, it's awesome. Go get it today and read it. It's so good and it's short. But he makes this point, like, we've misunderstood the passions. We've kind of pushed them to the side and we're like either hyper-rational or like radically emotional. But instead, human beings have spiritual emotions where we take our emotional desires and our passions, we order them to reason, to truth, and order them to the love of God and to his commandments. This is why the commandments are such a gift, because they help us do that. All right? So the final point is that we have an eternal destiny. We have a destiny beyond this world. We're called to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Right? And that's the beginning of our eternal life right now. We begin our eternal life now. Eternal life does not start, okay, this is like absolutely solid Christian theology, right? Eternal life doesn't start when you die. Eternal life start is now. Your faith, your friendship with Jesus Christ, so that's the beginning of our eternal life. And so in the Eastern tradition of Christianity, there's this thing called theosis. In the West, it's called deiformity. Okay? So theosis means to become like God. Our lives, our practice of the virtues, our, our exercise, our suffering, our commitment to truth, our obedience to the commandments, we become more perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And it begins now. But this is what C.S. Lewis says beautifully in The Weight of Glory, which you might know. He says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. All day long, in some degree, we are helping each other either towards heaven or hell. There's no such thing as an ordinary people, an ordinary person, right? We are either immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And everything that we do has to be seen in the light of this eternal destiny. There's a famous economist, 20th century economist, named John Maynard Keynes. doesn't really matter. But he said this line that's maybe some of you heard. He said, in the long run, we're all dead. But, as C.S. Lewis writes in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a deeper magic. And in the longest run, we're called to eternal life with God. To live with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to live with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so to get the human person right is not an exercise in intellectual fun. It's an exercise in what it means to live a good life, to live well, to die holy, and to live holy, to die holy, and to spend our eternal life with God. We're not just some kind of random thing that popped up. We are created in the image of God, willed by God, loved by God. He keeps us in being at every moment of our existence, and we are ever, we can be and should be everlasting splendors. So let us pray briefly. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, 
Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the sound of my pleading. If you, O Lord, should mark our guilt, Lord, who would survive? But with you is found forgiveness, and for this we revere you. My soul is waiting for the Lord. I count on his word. My soul is waiting for the Lord more than the watchman for daybreak. Let the watchman count on daybreak, but Israel on the Lord. Because with the Lord there is mercy and fullness of redemption, Israel indeed he will redeem from all his enemies. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Michael. We're going to have a song to reflect and kind of think about this for ourselves spiritually for a minute. Then we're going to have about 50 minutes of AMA. You can text it into the number they'll put on the screen if you have a question. And if you, um, if you can't come to the luncheon that we're going to have that's going to be more time for that, then, we'll, uh, then make sure you t- text in your question now for the few minutes that we have. Let's stand together and sing.